You may be seated. Good morning, Sanctuary. Oh, yeah, that's exactly how you want every sermon to start, isn't it? Hey, let me tell you just a funny thing. Uh, So we had a wedding here last night, a really beautiful wedding. And uh, if this isn't just like the most sanctuary story, um, a couple of uh, women from the church had just been so, so helpful, jumping in, doing all kinds of things throughout the week. And they helped set up for the reception after the, after the wedding. And I get a phone call from them. They said, Father Paul, um, we helped carry in the wine for the reception. And there's not enough wine. And they said, so we're going to bring some extra wine. And we're going to hide it in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, man. It's like we don't need a repeat of the wedding at Cana. Because we don't trust Father Paul that much. (laughs) Our reading today comes from uh, the Gospel of Mark. And Mark is kind of an interesting writer. He tends to to pack a punch. He's a man of few words, it seems. And uh, we can refer to Mark as the go gospel, right? Because it just doesn't waste any time. I think one of the most... uh, common words in the gospel of Mark is immediately, like Mark is always ready to get to the next thing. But because that's how he writes, a lot of what Mark is saying is very, very concentrated, right? So we can take just little snippets of what Mark is saying and we can, we can sit with it, right? Because it's so concentrated. There's a lot to pull out from what Mark has said. So I mean, an example of this is uh, we're all familiar with the wilderness temptation. This is immediately after Jesus' baptism. He goes out into the wilderness and we're told that he is tempted by the devil, right? And we know all these temptations. Turn these stones into bread, takes them up to the city, says all this can be yours, takes them to the mountain. All of this could be yours if you just worship me, right? Like we know all of this. Mark does this in two verses, But he basically says, he goes out into the wilderness, he's tempted by the devil, he overcomes the devil and he returns. So Mark is a man of few words. Today, we're told this story about Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and then the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. It's hard for us to imagine what it would have been like to be sick in the ancient world, just how disruptive sickness really was. In the ancient world, sick people stood out from everyone else. This was a serious issue to be sick because in that day there were no effective treatments, no effective cures or medicines or remedies. So you really only had a few options if you got sick. Your first option is something like a folk remedy, which these could have, you know, ranged from anything from like potions to dangerous fixes that people might suggest to you and not very effective, right? But it's the resources you have available to you. The other option is that you could pay a physician 
And this would have been a costly thing to do. It would have cost money, but then also the, the, the remedies and the cures that the doctor is suggesting aren't all that much more effective. Oftentimes in the ancient world, they focused on a leveling of the fluids, if you're familiar with this idea. So there was a lot of like bloodletting, uh, really, really dangerous practices. And oftentimes the things that you're doing to remedy the thing that you're afflicted with were worse than the affliction itself. So these are expensive, they're only available to the privileged, again, not all that effective. And then of course you have religious healing practices and all of these religions had something to say about healing and the process for being healed. But again, not all that effective and mostly cost money. So sick people stood out. Oftentimes they were visibly scarred from things like the bleeding, or they're marked in some other way to distinguish that those people are ill, or those people are sick. Lepers, remember, were required to announce their presence, oftentimes by like a ringing of a bell or shouting to announce their own presence. Most people who became sick in this way became beggars or they became wholly dependent on other people for their care, for their survival, for things like food, and shelter. This is why we find Simon Peter's mother-in-law in his house being sick like this, completely stripped a person of their social status. Fevers were particularly bad because there was no cure. There's no remedy that could fix a fever. In fact, a fever was not considered to be the symptom of an illness. A fever was an illness in and of itself. And we see this in, in the Old Testament text, right? That these kinds of illnesses like fevers were seen as a punishment. We see this in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And all sickness in the ancient world was seen as some kind of judgment. Remember when Jesus and the disciples are wandering along and they find this blind man. And what do the disciples ask Jesus? Who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Sickness was a judgment. So in the ancient world, a fever, because they didn't understand where it came from or how it left, it was referred to as heavenly fire because there's no fix. So if a fever would leave a person, if it would break, they would say, well, who could extinguish that heavenly fire? Only God. So along comes Jesus and they tell him, this woman is sick, and he does a few things. A few things that he shouldn't do, but of course it's Jesus, so he does do them. The first is that he touches a woman that he's not related to. A big no-no. The second is that he touches a sick woman that he's not related to. And the third thing that he does is that he heals that sick woman that he's not related to on the Sabbath. Three strikes, Jesus. But there are a few steps that I think we see take place that work for this woman's healing. Remember, as a sick person, she would not have been allowed to host anyone in her home. She would not have been permitted to extend hospitality to anyone. She has no social standing. Where is she? In her son-in-law's house. 
She's dependent on others for her care, for her own survival. This also means that she would have been cut off not only from like her friends and her family members, from her social status, but also from the worshiping community. She would have been separated from the people of God as a whole. And Jesus touches her. Jesus touches her and her fever is cured. And what's the very next thing that she does? She leaps, she jumps into service. This is what she does with her body that's been made whole. I think we wanna make a distinction between this idea of being cured of that thing that ails us and actually being healed. From that place of health and wholeness, this woman is not just restored in her body, she is restored to the body, to the community. She doesn't leap back into a position of oppression or patriarchal system of servanthood. Service in this moment is not being imposed on her or demanded of her. She takes up that dignity of hospitality and begins to serve from that place in the same way that Jesus serves. She's not serving in the way that women were called to serve in their culture. She's saying, I've seen Jesus do this and I'm gonna serve them like that. Imagine if she would have just settled for being cured and not for being healed. I think we do this all the time. We come asking for a cure, but what we need is healing. This woman's cure was that her fever left her. The fever broke. Her healing was that when she stepped into that place God imagined for her to serve those that God had called her to serve. We tend to do this because seeking a cure is a whole lot easier than being healed. Cures are just counterfeit for that real healing though that God imagines for us, desires for us. A number of years ago, uh, we used to host the Tulsa area big meeting for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I would get to sit in and listen to the speakers that they brought in. And one of the most tragic stories, and they would tell you this, one of the most tragic stories were the ones where people who were trapped in this addiction to alcohol thought they were free, but really they had just exchanged one addiction for another. Trading alcohol for gambling or alcohol for smoking or alcohol for shoplifting. And they realized that they hadn't done that hard, transformative, identity-shifting work of being healed, not just cured. We see this in our relationships. It's easier to simply write people off wholesale than to do that hard work of reconciliation, than working toward wholeness and being healed in our relationships. At a time of rampant individualism, it's easier to just find a place that suits our preferences than it is to stay rooted and grounded with a people in a place because you feel God has called you there. We see other counterfeits in, gosh, the increasing popularity of conspiracy theories, right? Conspiracy theories, they make it easy for us to blame someone else for the mess of the world that we live in. Oftentimes it's a mess of our own making, but we don't wanna talk about that. 
It lets our problems be blamed on just a select few people. Or maybe worse, it's a point of comfort to believe that there are really just a few powerful people really pulling all the strings, making our lives the way that they are. This is something of what we've seen unfolding over the last several years. We want a cure without the work of healing. We want to feel better without being made whole. So we have to ask, what is it that distinguishes being cured from being healed? When we look at the text, we see that when we are ready to be healed, it demands action on our part. It demands a response from us. We have to do something to move toward our healing. In one sentence, Mark's gospel tells us that the fever left her and she began to serve them. In one breath, in one sentence, she is healed and she begins to serve. That word serve is the word diakonai. It's to be of service to meet a need, to serve another, to wait on another. It's the same word that we use for deacon. Deacons are not just the old guys with white hair who help us find a seat and pass the buckets. We don't pass buckets anymore, but you know what I'm talking about. Deacons in this context is a, is a ministry of service. We say a deacon is one who stands at the threshold of the church. They are the ones who stand in that space between the church and the world. And their primary role is to invite the world into the church and then to send the church back out into the world. This is why for the last several weeks now, we've had one of our deacons standing at the back door for the dismissal at the end of service. It's a little odd. It's like a voice coming from heaven, especially when you don't know someone's behind you. But that's the reason behind it. They are standing there as one who represents service to the world and to the community, saying to all of us, go and serve and love the Lord. How? By going and serving and loving your neighbor. That's the ministry of the deacon. And that's what this woman is embodying here in Mark's gospel. What Mark is doing here is painting a microcosm of the church, a microcosm of the blessed community. Think about what's taken place in this story. There is a raising up. Remember, Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. This is the same language that we see in Jesus' resurrection in Mark 16, the same resurrection that we celebrate every Sunday. She is raised like that. There's the gathering of the people, the ecclesia, the church gathered around that raising. And there is a world in waiting for the church to be the church. Verse 33, the whole city was gathered around the door. In this moment, Mark's gospel is painting a picture of the church a place where a table is set, service is taking place, and the world is at the threshold. Dr. Ophelia Ortega, she's a Presbyterian theologian. She says this, I think you have this upstairs, maybe. I hope so. It's long, so if not, buckle up. This woman gets up 
and turns the Sabbath into a Paschal day of service to others. Jesus does not command her. She is the one that assumes the initiative and awaits the consequences. Discovering the value of mutual service above the sacredness of the Sabbath. Remember, she is breaking Sabbath law by serving them. She served them. Simon's mother-in-law interprets the gift that she has received. Her service cannot be understood as a woman's menial work under the domination of lazy males, but as a true messianic ministry, creator of Jesus' new family. For that reason, this woman is Jesus' first servant and joins him in the radical announcement in action of the kingdom of God his first deacon. Simon and the other disciples won't understand it until Easter. They will not want to become servants of each other. Remember, they're arguing over who will be the greatest among them. They did not perceive that the son of God came to serve and give his life for all. She, on the other hand, knows it. She has overcome all of the selfishness and restrictive teachings and has been close to Jesus. Deep down, she is already Christian. Diakonisa, a servant of the church, gathered in her son-in-law's house. This is what healing looks like. I think oftentimes we enjoy the idea of serving God, but we're not so sure about serving each other. But again and again in the gospels, Jesus insists that the way to doing for God is by doing for one another. This is how we move from being cured to being healed. Remember the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, and strength, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. My friend, Father John Paul said it like this, we serve and love God by serving and loving each other. My dead friend, St. Anthony the Great said it like this, our life and our death is with our neighbor. If we gain our brother, we have gained God. But if we scandalize our brother, we've sinned against Christ. Too often, our perception of serving is simply an occasion for doing good. Instead, Jesus directs us to this hidden, obscure, tucked away life of service. Remember Philippians 2, it says that Jesus, who being in very nature was God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Here's what I want to suggest to us today. A lot of us are in need of healing. And some of those wounds are wounds that have been inflicted by just our own stupid. But some of those wounds were inflicted by people and places that should have been safe for us. And the path to healing from those kinds of wounds isn't always clear. We go chasing down folk remedies and listening to anyone who has an opinion on what we ought to be doing or ought to be saying. And while those things may eventually lead to a cure, 
what Jesus intends for you isn't just to stop the bleeding, but to be made whole. Jesus intends for you to be healed. Jesus intends for your relationships to be reconciled, not just pacified. And what Jesus shows us is that tending to others, thinking about others, making room for others, leading others into service is part of how that healing gets worked out in us. Henry Nouwen wrote a wonderful little book called The Wounded Healer. And he said, the great illusion of leadership is to think that people can be led out of the desert by someone who has never been there. All of us in some way have found ourselves in the desert. Throughout Mark's gospel, this theme of the desert and the wilderness continues to creep into the narrative. Remember where Jesus goes immediately after this moment. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place. And there he prayed. Again and again, Jesus goes into these wild, deserted places to show us that we can remain faithful even when our own lives turn into wild, deserted places. And he shows us again and again how to return. When Christ steps into the wilderness, he is able to step back in fullness because he steps into the work of doing what? Of serving others, doing the will of the Father every time he steps back in. This is what Nowen means, that the only one who is ever able to faithfully lead us out of the wilderness, out of the desert, is Christ. But we can be that voice for someone else. On the other side of the wilderness, leading them to the path that Christ has made for them. And the path that Christ leaves for us is a path of service, which becomes for us a path of healing. And we know we are healed to bring healing to other people. Listen, I think there are some who need long seasons of rest and recalibrating before a life of service is even possible. But there are others whose wounds need the kind of care that is fitted to service. Service orients us in ways that other kinds of engagement in a community just can't do. Service reminds us of who we are, of who our neighbors are, and the posture that we are always called to embody. So, let's serve Sanctuary for our healing and the healing of the world. Amen.